Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another Board Explorer Live. Hello, how are you? On another hot day here in Sussex. I hope it's a bit cooler where you are. It is very hot at the moment. Um, anyway, we're, we're back again. It's four o'clock in the UK. I think I've got something in this eye which is going to irritate me if I... I was just to start to read. The other eye, of course, doesn't really see very much. Hello to Jeff Kellison uh, from the Mojave Desert. I'm sure that's not how it's pronounced, but um, that's the best I can do. And to TurboStream, hello. To Ed Loud, to John F, to Larry Hazelwood and to Steve G so far. And I'm sure others coming all the time. Hello. We are continuing our reading of the Wisdom of the Fields by H.J. Massingham. Uh, I'm hotter than the balloon in a boiler suit in a boiling cauldron of boiling oil. <laughs> oh dear, Adrian. Is it, is it a bit tepid where you are? Is it, is it warming up? Um, for your information, we have a podcast version of this. So after this show... I um, upload the audio to um, Anchor FM, where you can find us. And I have subsequently discovered that Anchor FM also put this out to a number of places, including Spotify, which I don't really know. I've never used Spotify as such. I don't have an account with them, but I, I understand that it um, is a music uh, download, a streaming platform of some description. At first... When I first saw Spotify some years ago, I thought it was, I misread it, and I thought it was Spotify, and I couldn't understand why everybody was talking about this amazing app in which you could spot a fly, and then I realised there wasn't an L in it. Uh, so there we are. 95 degrees, says Larry Hazelwood, presumably Fahrenheit, not centigrade, or else there ain't going to be much left of you. Um, so there we go. Anyway, um, the lovely Julia may or may not be with us this afternoon. I think she's got a friend round and they're all in the garden enjoying the sunshine and splashing about in her pond, her pool pond, in her swimming pool. How the other half live, don't you know? Anyway, we will continue. We are coming close to the end, so we should get to the end of this particular chapter. Um, which will be great, and then we can get on to uh, the main crux of the book. So this is just sort of now, I think, winding up. Swatterfly, yeah, that would be good. Uh, this is winding up the business about um, Cobbit. So we'll crack on. Can't remember exactly where we are, but I think we were about here. So he says, um, this is self-evident, and I can't remember what is self-evident, but whatever was on the previous chapter. Um, hello, Dan Ludlow. Thank you for your uh, interesting comment. I've just read it on uh, YouTube regarding the video today, by the way. This is self-evident from the history of the Protestant Reformation. He wrote... Who wrote this? Is this... This Cobbett? Did he write that? He wrote it not as an apologist for Catholicism... Catholicism? Catholicism? Beg your pardon. <laughs> Sometimes you read a word phonetically and go, ah, it's not that. Uh, yes. So he wrote it not as an apology for ca 
done it again. Catholicism. Uh, but for the social and economic system, a system of wholeness that had flowered under its wing. He says so himself. I have not written as a Catholic, but as an Englishman. Cobbett's attitude to religion can only be understood if it is seen from the angle of his crusade on behalf of the wholeness of living. Both his loves and his hates pivot solely upon this hinge. He did not praise the monasteries for their rule or dedication to their service of God or for their lives of contemplation and retirement from the world. On the contrary, he glorified them for what they did in and for the world, namely for their local charities, the balance they kept between spade and pen, and because they were self-supporting communities. He gathered that they had been better landlords than the gentry, and his voluminous writings upon religious orders very closely echo the ages-old pronouncement of the founding, founding fathers subsequently adopted by Jefferson. All men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So far as this tradition was maintained, the old church had fostered the small proprietor craftsman and cultivator, whose independence and democratic self-government in the 15th century have, in our time, be, been commended in Dr Trevlin's English Social History. Um, I've got Trevlin's English Social History. It's a marvel. I haven't read it all. Uh, I've read bits of it. Uh, it's a fantastic book. He also he did the history of the world, I think, or the history of England or English history at Trevlin. I can't remember his initial. He's another one that goes by the initials of his name. Maybe we'll read that another when you've got a couple of lifetimes to read his big tomes. His discovery. Sorry, he discovered that by the act of Edward III, the wage of a day's reaping, or threshing, a quarter of wheat, was fixed at fourpence. This fourpence would buy a pair of shoes or a gallon of old wine, while a fat goose could be had for two and a half pence, and a gallon of wine for a penny. The contemporary labourer might be getting four shillings instead of fourpence, but he was paying ten shillings instead of fivepence when he bought a bushel of wheat. In 1495, when the labourer's wage was two shillings a week, a man could get a man could in fifteen weeks earn enough to buy his whole, his whole family the wheat, malt, and oatmeal they needed for a whole year. So oh I say a man could buy in fifteen weeks enough of your basic supplies for a whole year. Fifteen weeks is what, just over is that four months, isn't it? Fifteen weeks. So in 15 weeks, he's saying you could buy all your food, the, at least, you know, the, the essence of all your food. You had to make it all up into all the various things. It's quite interesting. I wonder if that is true today. Again, the populations of the parish of Galby and Frisby in Leicestershire numbered 49 families in 1086. In 1831, they numbered 21. And in 1931... 
19. So they just went down and down and down, these little p tiny parishes. Figures like these clearly explain Cobbett's attachment to the ages of faith. From precisely the same point of view, Cobbett denounced both the nonconformists, the Quakers as dealers in hops, the Methodists as shaking the brimstone bag, or preaching heaven as compensating and so con condoning, poverty, condoning poverty and its ills, and the Parsons and the Parsons of the established church. He hated the country clergy because their pluralism had broken the golden rule every priest to his parish for their predatory part in the enclosures and for the misappropriation of tithes which had lost to the poor, the aged and the infirm, the widow and the orphan, one third of the tenth which the old religion had ordained. Oh, I see. So they, they must have originally had some money to the poor, but the... Uh, the tithes misappropriated them so that the money didn't go to the poor anymore. The essence of Cobbett's quarrels with contemporary Protestants of all denominations was that they were living from the land and on the people, not for the people and on the land. They had joined the enemies of both. The watchdogs had turned wolves. They were failing to render back what they received and so were false to what we nowadays call the rule of return. And to break this rule was a sin against wholeness of living. A parson who wrote to him, Your religion, Mr Corbett, seems to me altogether political, received a greater answer. The fact is that I am no doctor of divinity, and like a religion, any religion that tends to make men innocent and benevolent and happy by taking the best possible means of furnishing them with plenty to eat and drink and... I read that wrong. The fact is that I'm no divinity of... I'm no doctor of divinity and like a religion, any religion, that tends to make men innocent and benevolent and happy by taking the best possible means of furnishing them with plenty to eat and drink and wear. Cobbett's sense of the unseen world was defective, but he had a long but he had a loving awareness of this one that was a preparation for it. His historical, political, economic, social, religious criticism were radiations from one centre. From all, from the land, all the good things come, and God had given men the land to make them whole. I'm just going to skip this last two pages because it's all a bit heavy, really, and, and I don't think we need it now. I think we can get on to chapter two. So I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just going to skip there because this is like, OK, we got the message. I think we'll just crack on now, if that's all right with everybody. Uh, oh, good afternoon to Dan Ludlow, to Morton Lewis, to Ed Lau, to Cynthia Pate and everybody else. I saw an argument today somewhere, she says, online, that the gap between the richest and the poor is the greatest now than at the time of the French Revolution. Blimey. I imagine the gap... The gap is. Uh, and, of course, I think what's interesting there, that's an interesting observation, and probably we are aware of that gap more than perhaps a couple of hundred years ago when 
um, communication wasn't so obvious that we could, you know, almost um, make have rich lists and things we could sort of i guess back then people could just guess that people were wildly rich i don't know maybe we still do that and just guess that people are wildly rich hello to linda kane so anyway hello uh yeah we're going to start with chapter two because um that was all getting a bit heavy and uh, i think we just get going so chapter two kentish countryman here's a quote by Hannah to her son, Joseph Arch, which goes, What you can do for yourself, my boy, when you grow up to be a man, never let anyone else do for you. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? Whatever you can do for yourself, my boy, when you grow up to be a man, never let anyone else do for you. So that's, uh, that's quite um, prophetic. Prophetic? Maybe we can all eat Madeira cake. Yes, let them eat cake. Uh, Morton says, yeah, but they did something about it. Yeah, we, I mean, people used to have proper, you know, people go on these protests and things, don't they, and, and under the name of silly little things that they have with their mottos and all of that. But in the, in the old days, people actually did rise up. The peasants really did revolt. Right, here we go. Let's hope that this is, uh, this is a bit more insightful now. When Cobbett died a failure, he left his country just embarking, as it believed, upon the voyage of inevitable progress to the fortunate isles. When the subject of this chapter died in our genera when the subject of this chapter died in our generation, the end of that voyage had been reached, and the islands we see to be only barren rock. In the hundred years between both them, our in the hundred years between them both, our countryside was laid waste by industrialism that Cobbett's age had hatched. Its farming had gone bankrupt in peace and was being exploited towards the end of bankruptcy of its soils in war. Whether in peace or war, it had been emptied of its human cultivators. During the 19th century, farming had its periods of prosperity and depression, but after 1879, it went downhill without a pause until the two great wars of our century produced a temporary and artificial recovery at the expense of our soils. So the nation reached the end of that process of detachment from its own soil of which Cobbett saw the beginnings. A heavy price had been extracted, two million unemployed, two million derelict acres, a yearly doctor's bill heavier than the food bill through malnutrition, a cycle of world wars generated in part by a competition for foreign markets that was war in all but name. Cobbett would have felt that the one increase in the disease of plants and animal was alone a justification for the prophecies of his own contemporaries. Cobbett would have felt that the, that the great increase in the disease of plants and animals was alone a justification for the prophecies his own contemporaries ignored. The first of my sons of Cobbett died at the age of 71, 
towards the middle... What? The first of my sons of Cobbett died at the age of 71 towards the middle of the 1930s when English agriculture reached the lowest ebb in its history. Throughout, its, throughout his life, he struggled with every form of adversity... adversity adversity, thank you, that could have afflicted his circumstances. Illness, poverty, transportation, hardship, overwork, the caprice of employers. As his years lengthened, is he t he's talking about his, uh, presumably his son, is it? As his years lengthened, he suffered what was to him to be the heaviest of his burdens. Novelties began to break in the surroundings and the minds of his associations, alien to his convictions of a way of life. Yet he tediously clung on to what he instinctively knew to be a wisdom based upon the fundamentals of living out of which he was never shaken. Or maybe he's still talking about Cobbett, but he said the sons of Cobbett. Since he left school at the age of eight and received no further education, he was as much self-taught in his rural professions as was Cobbett himself in his politics and English grammar. So oh, maybe he's talking about his son. Or he's talking about a person, a son of Cobbett, a, a modern farmer, I think. He survived into a period when a well-known firm of provision merchants used to advertise for boys from secondary schools merely to pat up butter behind a counter. But Murray's closeness to Cobbett... Oh, here we are, we now find out who he is. But Murray's closeness to Cobbett was more integral than that. He possessed those qualities of self-help, and self-respect, independence of character and devotion to his calling, which are traditional to the English countryman. It was though his daughter, sorry, it was through his daughter that I heard of them and of him, and so, sorry, I'm just reading, I'm just reading really crap today, I apologise. It was through his daughter that I heard of them and of him so that the continuity of Cobbett's England may be said to have reached to the present time through the person and then the memory of this obscure Kentishman. So it just seems to be talking about somebody which he didn't immediately introduce, but hey-ho, there we are. Somebody called Murray. Just trying to get into uh, his rhythm of talking. OK. Right. I have called him a Kentishman because his responsible, his responsible working manhood was nearly all spent in Kent. But he was born in 1862 of an Essex family of ten whose father was a highly skilled agricultural labourer of an intelligent and independent spirit. Like most of the labourers of the mid-19th century, he would handle a dozen different jobs in a day. But living in the eastern corn belt, was a speci he, he was specialist in hand reaping. His love and understanding of land, the land in which he had no stake at all, made him view with deep distrust the advent of machinery into farming. He believed that it would hasten the drift from the land that had been flowing fast or slow ever since the Tudor enclosures, and he knew that it damaged the straw and knocked the grain from the ear. But he also had a prophetic sense about it, of whose fulfilment he reminded his son in later years. 
It was an instinctive perception of the path down which English agriculture was heading and of the dis disintegration of the former pattern of living which kept the land and its workers together. Murray's own, father's, Murray's own father's particular gift as a reaper he inherited from his, from his father, who started work at the age of six and the pay of sixpence a week on one of the large Essex farms. He became a lord of harvest, that is to say that he was the foreman of the band of reapers, arranging for their food and rates of pay, heading them in the corn and setting the time for their strokes, the women following to tie the sheaves. He had never he had never had but a fortnight at school and was taught to read and write by the farmer's daughter. The men lived in at the farmhouse and took their meals in the big kitchen. As the lord, he received twelve shillings a week, and this enabled him to marry a sheppy girl probably from the Isle of Sheppey then, I assume, who could neither read nor write. But she wrote, as it were, with a needle, not a pen, making all the shepherds and labourers smocks at one shilling and sixpence each and stitching the stylized devices which indicated their callings at the hiring fairs. Oh, how fascinating. When my Kentishman was a small boy, his parents moved to Sheppey, where the poverty of so large a family forced them to live chiefly on bread and vegetables. This sounds worse than it actually is. His father, who lived to seventy, hardly losing a tooth, spoke of the bread gleaned by his wife and daughters from the fields and baked at home as having more stay in it than the bread of modern times. The trouble was with the clothes the trouble was with the clothes rather than the food. The children went on long journeys to and from school in bad weathers, ill clad and shod, and having no changes steaming themselves dry by the fire and and having no changes steaming themselves by the fire. That and the endless strain on the mother to feed, clothe and keep her children converted her son when he himself married to the small family, to, as he said, quality, quantity, quality for quantity. Sorry, I'll read that bit again. That and the endless strain of the mother to feed, clothe and keep her children converted her son when he himself married to the small family, to, as he said, quality for quantity. I hope this is making sense. The spirit of the family, handed down from its peasant forebears, induced the father to break from his utter dependence on the farmer and with no capital to set up as a master thatcher. The boldness of the plunge paid him well. He relieved his family from the margin of subsistence and kept him in independent work till he was 70. When he was 12, his son joined him as an apprentice. apprentice after four years' experience as a lock boy who gathered up all the stray wool at the sheep shearing and the wagoner's boy who led both the wagon and the plough teams. He drew the, ye the yelms, packed them with the jack, carried them up the ladder to his father and in time learned his father's mastery. 
This was his real education, for his father instructed him not only in his craft, but in all the country sights and sounds. The pair of them observed in their journey across the bleak marshes of Sheppey. To and from a cottage, barn or rick to be thatched, they would sometimes walk sixteen miles a day. When the rains were heavy, the dikes overflowed and the narrow plank bridges were deep under water. Up to his knees in water, the master would first carry over his tools, feeling for his footing at each step, then return for his apprentice and bear him on over on his back. Yet after such hardships and exposures, he had enough energy left to become a leading archer and slinger of an evening and roast the beans beaten out by the flail over the wood fire. This was Murray's life till he was twenty-three, and had been married two years, living with his wife in a two-roomed cottage. But going down with the, but going down with a pulmonary illness that spent his strength and his savings, he had to leave the winds and rains of Sheppey. Then began his long and arduous life in Kent, first as a coachman to a horse fancier under the North Downs. His only experience of horses had been as a wagoner's boy. How did he succeed in jumping the preliminary stages of stable boy and groom? The walks over the searching miles of Sheppey must have been the answer that enriched his knowledge and understanding if they mastered his body. His father never missed a field or an animal or a farm in praise or criticism. In illustration, his father never missed a field or an animal, or a farm, in praise or criticism, in illustration and comparison, and he regarded his father as the wisest of men. In absorbing these wayside discourses into his receptive being, he became schooled in nature and husbandry, and so equipped himself for a post for which he had no specialised qualifications at all. He transferred the attentiveness he had unconsciously acquired to his new master, who in turn taught him all he knew about the horses and horsemanship. He became proficient, not only in driving single, pair and tandem horses, but in breaking young ones into saddle and carriage work, nursing them in sickness and judging their points. He thought nothing of sitting up all night with one that ailed, and never reconciled himself in later life to their supersession by the motor-car. Four years later, he took on the exacting business of assistant jobmaster on the estate of a lady of title in the next village, driving, running the stables, haymaking, looking after the meadowland, ordering the, fo the forage and auditing the accounts. Her ladyship was an autocratic philanthropist whose staff were black sheep and ex-prisoners, and he, and he had the handling of them. For all this as well as buying new horses at the London sales and coping with the benevolent despotism, despotism of his Lady Bountiful, he received 18 shillings a week. When he remarried after the loss of his first wife, his wage, his wage was, increased by, was increased to a pound. Again, his health broke after nine years. Again, his health broke after nine years of a series of ordeals which included night driving in winter for the dances of her ladyship and her guests, 
these were not infrequently sorry these not infrequently behaved like mr bob sawyer and mr benjamin allen and on there and mr pickwick journeys north to interview mr allen senior he acquired a local reputation as a moonlight driver the unworldly shadows cast by its beams making sensitive horses all nerves since all this entailed getting three hours in bed for several nights a week, with all the responsibilities of long daylight hours to be included, he had to obey the doctor and leave, not before his lady Catherine de Burr had delivered a lofty lecture to his wife on the presumption in leaving. Golly, talk about having a hard life. He then became a coachman to a private family, whose head, a wealthy London solicitor, he had made buying, running, and leaving a state. Sorry, I can't always work out how he phrases his sentences. It's just taking me a bit of time because he, a bit like Morton, has his own rhythm of writing. But I haven't yet, um, I haven't yet uh, switched into it. So I apologise for that. He then became a coachman to a private company whose head, a wealthy London solicitor had made buying, running and leaving estates his hobby. In one way or another, he served his family with one interval for the rest of his working life. His new master was fidgety and irascible, and at first Murray's mind was divided between how long he could put up with him and how long he would suit him. Rural unemployment then meant the workhouse, and he was torn between his natural independence and this spectre that haunted the mind of every depossessed countryman. But when the restrictions and interferences culminated in the governor shooting his cat, uh, a, a good ratter, for walking on the lawn, he forgot his self-counsel of keeping his tongue between his teeth and wagged it to such purpose that he got an apology. Thenceforth, a mutual esteem and liking grew up between them. Nor did the long hours and the heavy work affect his devotion to the family. Its members took him into his confidence and made him the repository of much of its personal difficulties and pains. He became, in the end, the godfather to his master's grandson. The hours were long, from 6.30am to 9.30pm, together with night work. But these troubled him less than the series of flittings from estate to st estate, eight of them in all, for he was a man in whom the pride of work was all in all. The coats of the horseshoes, no, the coats of the horses shone with flickering lights like the carriages, and the harness room smelt of polish with sets of harness covering two walls, the saddles high on their trees on another, the burnished steel bits and snaffles on the baize-covered boarding above the stove and the whips in the rack behind the door. The whips he always prepared himself before taking them to the village saddler to be stained and varnished and mounted in leather and silver. He would select straight long wands from the holly trees in the shrubbery and trim and peel them till the wood was as white as it was round. Yet, he never used the whip, relying on his voice and pressure on the reins to manage his horses. 
Even on weekdays, their hooves were polished, but on Sundays, their loose boxes were decorated with a wide fringe of plaited straw, with the ears folded back and interwoven with red and blue braid. His thatching experience came in handy, handy for these festival days, and he sometime, somehow found time for gladdening the barren flint-paved stable-yard with a narrow flower border at one end. Living as he did above the hayloft, he had no cottage of his own, but he remembered the cottage gardens of his forefathers. His vegetable garden he made for himself out of a piece of rough field at the far end of the estate. All this constructive work conflicted with his having to leave time. Sorry, all this constructive work conflicted with his having to leave time and again at the vol at the volatile will of his master. This was a burden more severe to him than fifteen hours' work and six days of the week, with not enough time for his meals or to talk to his wife and daughter.、Uh, is this going down well, or is this just? Too heavy, or、um, I'm not quite interesting.、Uh, I'm not quite sure how this is going down because he's, he's obviously describing this Kentish countryman who seems to work like no other person you'd ever heard of. Then the motor car invaded his cherished stables and drove out the horses. He left the post of chauffeur mechanic to another, and on the next move to a new estate. Was given that of a working bailiff. This shortened his hours to twelve hours a day, but left him poorer in income, lacking the visitors' tips and the discounts on the stable bills. But his new estate duties offered him a good, a golden opportunity of reclaiming it from dereliction, particularly as the absence of the family in London for six months of the year left him in free charge of it. The estate became his. All, but in ownership. Oh, became his all, but in ownership, and the peasant stock gave him the chance, and and his peasant stock gave him the chance of redeeming decay into order and fruitfulness, waste into economy and interdependence. He had to look after the poultry, control the ubiquitous rabbits, reclaim the meadowland, supervise the felling. Fence making and hop pole cutting of several acres of woodland, and lay out the formal Dutch garden without having been taught the elements of geometry. This he accomplished with measure and line from a scale drawing. But what he most enjoyed was the forestry, which he could combine the making of poles and chestnut paling, with the husbandry of the woods. We have a slurp of coffee. He devoted himself to the more. He devoted himself the more eagerly to such stewardship, because through it, he brought himself into contact with one of the special arts of Kent farming, that of hop yards. The estate was in the heart of the hop and fruit country of the Ragstone Hills above the valley of the Medway, and he was quick to acquire all the details of ploughing, cultivating, manuring. Picking and drying the hops, but what most interested him was the experience of an orch orchardist in growing hops and soft fruit among his trees, which he manured with 
cartloads of old rags. The current assumption that a traditional landsman will never look the traditional assumption that sorry the current assumption that a traditional landsman will never look at a novelty is contradicted by the very nature of old-fashioned husbandry. It was always intensive, particularly among peasants, so that any empirical device to increase the yield and variety of the crops and persuade one to interact with another will always catch the eye and ear of the husbandman. His suspicion is for the extensive farmer of our own days. Okay. Murray's master having died when he was feeding on his new knowledge, the son sold the estate and desiring to become a farmer, bought another with a farm attached near Tunbridge. The pang of being uprooted once more was the less acute in this instance because he had made himself unpopular in the village for defending one of the London hop-pickers whom he, like the rest of his neighbours, regarded as the lowest of the low. But if they were a poor lot, they were made to pay for their unmannerly intrusion in a way that brought their exploiters more discredit than the worst of their offences merited. <coughs> Excuse me, a bit of Covid there. <coughs> they were fleeced by the shopkeepers, sold inferior food and forced to lodge in unventilated insanitary hovels by the whole families and in conditions that no farm animal had to endure. Regarded as illegitimate prey for all, regarded as the illegitimate prey of all who had dealings with them, they excited the pity of their defender, who met with the righteous indignation commonly meted out to those who question the judges, justice of the judges. Cool. This is much heavier than the earlier part in uh, in the book. How are you? Do are you? Are you? Um, are you still there? Is it making more sense to you as I read it than it is to me? It was one of the ironies of life that this man, who had hitherto served others in a variety of occupations for which he had no training or inherited aptitude, should have found his true vocation on a farm in surroundings the reverse of authentically rural. The country was flat and dull, and the village had parted with most of its traditional grace. The inhabitants worked either at the local brewery or the factory making gramophone needles, while the housewives did a thriving business in baby farming for the Waifs and Strays Society. But being made a bailiff on the farm of 130 acres by the son of his old master, he found himself in his element. It was a mixed farm with only a few milking cows, but well stocked with bullocks and calves for fattening. The star of the farm was a herd of Yorkshire middle-white pedigree pigs, and it also ran flocks of hurdled sheep and geese. Since the farmer grew his own fodder crops, the farm supported the animals, and the animals supported the farm. Trifolium was grown, and deep-rooting plants like sanfroin and linseed kept the land in good heart as the beasts in good health. The geese pastured the orchard and the folded ewes fertilised the land for the corn crops. 
Having charge of all this variety in an interlocked and interchanging economy of self-maintenance, our hero entered, as it were, upon his heritage. Oh, this is, this is the bit where I really wanted to hear about, the mixed farming and, and all of that. Yet the only practical experience he had to equip him for this new and onerous responsibilities were the comments and the homilies of his father on his walks with him across the Sheppey Marshes. And these and his own observations of the farming scene drifting past him from his perch on the coachman's bock gave him a start. So, in other words, all his history that he had observed from afar and been told by his father started to come in. That's interesting. So there was, there was a reason for all that potted history of this bloke, Murray. These and his own observations of the farming scene drifting past him... Oh, yes, from his, it gave him a start. He supplemented them by talks snatched with farmers and farm labourers from his own exacting labours. These were his only credentials for managing a self-supporting and so complex farm. His father possessed hardly more when he broke away from being a farmhand to become a master thatcher. He did... He not only did manage the farm but brought it round from a makeshift neglect to an organism in full health. Every evening he walked round it after his work hours with as much attentiveness as if it had been his own. Nor was his regard only for its fertility and prosperity, but also for its beauty. With his daughter came, When his daughter came home on a visit when the linseed was in flower, she was to be sure, he said, to go and see it at midday when it was at its best. But the farmer's son, who had made Murray his bailiff, was a businessman before he was a farmer. Immediately after the armistice of 1918, he smelt what was in the political wind and sold up the farm for a good price well before the debacle of agriculture after the repeal of the Corn Production Act of 1921. With nothing but a small annuity settled on it by the family, his bailiff found himself workless and forced to live in a cheap lodgings in Tunbridge. Though he was close upon sixty, he contrived to pick up a gardener's job at Hadlow, near where he had once been a coachman. His master drank so heavily that he was, at, he was more or less at liberty to make what he could of the garden. He did so well with his strawberries, asparagus and celery that he became the talk of the neighbourhood. He invented a method of his own pruning of the roses and fruit trees that earned him prizes at flower shows. Then, some years later, the farmer's son of his old master summoned his bailiff back again to take part in an experiment in poultry farming at Hawkehurst on the Kent-Sussex border. The house was a watermill of the regional brick and white weatherboarding with a roof of weathered and lichen tiling tucked away in a deep valley overarched with oak. How beautiful is that? That sounds lovely. He had an orchard and a garden to look, look after as well as a couple of hundred chickens, a flock of geese and some ducks, and his home was a comfortable one in the granary to the mill, built on brick piers and open linhays below. Here, 
surely was an end of the wanderings and the vicissitudes of uprootings and swift changes of fortune. Here a man could be at peace and cultivate his garden before taking the last journey of all. And for a time it went well, the governor working enthusiastically beside him and ventilating ideas about making the place a self-supporting unit to feed the family which he, the thrifty son of Cobbett, delighted to test and practice. Here his daughter, working in the town, received her adult education in country life from her walks with her father at the weekends over the steep hills and down the twisting lanes, windmills above and watermills below. In these, he took, in these he took deep interest and instructed her in the mechanism of the different types, particularly the windmill at Sandhurst, which had five sweeps. But almost before he could realise it, his interest had become an antiquarian one. The centuries-old mills, like card houses, one after the other, were falling derelict. So his own life fell away from this pleasant place, less than two years after he had settled there. The governor, in short, changed wives. Though the wife-to-be and the wife that was confided in him together with the husband that... Sorry. The governor, in short, changed wives. Though both wife-to-be and wife that was confided in him together with the husband and all in an atmosphere of amicable arrangement, that did not save the mill from being sold and him leaving it. In this instance, the widow of his original master and the mother of the poultry farmer came to his rescue and installed him in a cottage on the downs above Aylesford. There he became the gardener of four acres, with cherry and apple trees down the slope and still chickens and geese for him to ward among them. There too, for the first time in his life, he had the chance, through, through approaching the, though approaching the seventies, of making a cottage garden of his own out of the rubble and lime and trodden earth the builders had left after putting up the cottage. In less than three years it throve with flowers and vegetables, and under his care plants and beasts never failed to thrive. But just as soon as he had made his patch of desert blossom and was turning the corner of the seventies, thrombosis and phleb phlebititis lamed him for life. Though an annuity was slightly his annuity was slightly increased, he had to leave the cottage to make room for another worker, and this broke his heart. He had been permitted to stay on without pay. Oh, sorry, had he been permitted to stay on without pay and in return for this cottage supervise the four acres by shuffling round them, he might well have survived for many years. But to be alive, unwanted, with idle hands and fruitless schemes was intolerable to such a man. His daughter, now married and living in Hastings, found her parents a flat in the town high, high enough for them to look out onto the sea. He was far in independent to make this his home with her, but in less than a year he was dead. Well, that's a very sad 
that's a very sad story about a, a Kentish man who seemed to uh, never have a place to live and was shuffled on and on and on and on. Um, so that's that's. Um, That's quite tough. I just want to see if I can just get through a little bit a little bit more before we finish. This Kentish man who probably had only a dozen years sorry, this Kentish man who died only a dozen years ago lived Cobbett's councils probably without ever having heard of him. Leaving school at the age of eight, he had to master the three R's as well as the variety of professions that would have taxed the full strength and abilities of half a dozen men, even with the preliminary training and technical instruction that he lacked. Yet he could audit accounts, organise estate work on paper, as well as in the field, and write letters with apparently no difficulty. He was, it was the, a peculiar, peculiarity of his letters that he spelt himself with the I, the sole survivor of the great chairmakers of the 18th century, whom I personally know does the same. Sorry, I'm just... Sometimes when you read, you know when you get a bit confused. Is he talking about the same man or is he introducing another one now? I'm not quite sure. Is um, I, I can easily get a, a little bit confused here. Uh, it was it was a peculiarity of his letters that he spelt himself with an I, the letter I, the sole survivor of the great chairmakers of the 18th century, whom I personally know does just the same. He seemed totally unaware of his extraordinary versatility, exercised without the slightest forewarning or preparation. What carried him through was pride in the worth of his work, which never considers the sacrifice it may, and with him did, exact. This crowned him with that natural dignity, so that his daughter told me, so his daughter told me, all who knew him remarked. His powers of observation, oh, it is talking about the same bloke, his powers of observation gave him a natural scholarship, like W. H. Hudson, shot through with emotion. When he took his walks with his daughter, a look of Ineffable pleasure, she said, came upon his face when he spied a lusty crop or animals with vigour in their limbs and a sheen on their coats. A field choked with mayweed or cadlick, charlock, gave him as much distress as though the land was his own. Slovenly or short-cut farming he abhorred and he was a stout advocate of the mixed farm, becoming more and more old-fashioned. He maintained that mixing crops with beast was the only way to farm in this country, whatever they might do in Canada. A fourfold rotation of crops, arable sheep, a return of all waste products to the land, and no stinting of labour was his idea both of good farming and farming that would pay. He disapproved of artificial fertilisers on the ground that, though they may have their uses as a fillip, they put no goodness into the earth. Machines, he believed, never did the work so thoroughly as men, even if they did it with less labour and in few hours. The farmers who were obdurate about raising their labourers' wages were, he maintained, the more likely to exploit their land. His grasp 
of the topographical pattern was exceptionally quick and sure. Though he never studied an ordnance map in his life, his mind made a map of the new district and kept it there years after leaving it. The coachman's box aided him in picking up the landmarks, getting his bearings and linking up the whole composition. But his acute sense of direction was an inward guide inherited not only from the traditional countrymen but the primitive ancestry of us all. He knew every tree, whether in or out of leaf, and all the birds. Many of these he recognised by note without seeing them, or by flight at a distance, and he was a champion of birds for their services to crops, as well as the animation and felicity they imparted to the scene. Of wild flowers he had no more than average knowledge, but an uncommon delight in them. A deep dark lane lit by countless glowworms, a field of flax in bloom, a pair of grey wagtails by stream, wild daffodils in a spinney at Hawkehurst. These sights were printed on his memory, and their page was turned and returned in his talk. There's, there's, he's, he's summing this up, but it goes on for a little bit, and that's why I'm, that's why I'm pausing, because um, we might just come back to that to, to uh, revigor ourselves, because we've been going on for a bit. Um, let, let, let's pause there and just uh, have a talk about um, that. And I apologise for my stumbling. I was just getting into the, into the, into the rhythm of it then, as you probably felt. Um, it's a, t a tad heavy going. But stick with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because when you don't when you don't know the text or you don't know his style or you don't know quite what where the book is going, there's there's part of me that's trying to interpret that and think, does everybody get what I'm doing? Is this too dull and boring? How do I make it more interesting? Why am I stumbling on every other line? And all those sort of things are going through my mind, which doesn't then give me a comprehensive overview of of the effect of the book. However, the way the chapter was set up in which he gave us this person's life story and all the elements of his life from the coachman his father being a thatcher and learning some of that and all the different sort of apprentice roles and the upheavals of his life and moving on and then the experience towards the end of his life of the mixed farm where he suddenly blossomed and all those things came into it but then as life throws you these curveballs and says, right, okay, you can't do that anymore, and he, you know, became looked after the, the drunkard's cottage, and then was called back. Um, in which he then we sum up his character and sum up the way he learned, which was not by going on a course or going to university, but learning from experience and picking up these things and just the wisdom of the land, which is the the wisdom of the fields, in fact. That it just goes to show, and uh, uh, how important experience is over, you know, being told in a um, uh, academic setting of what you should or shouldn't do. And it's interesting that even then, at the beginning, at the end of the First World War, really, um, that he was an advocate of mixed farming, and could see that these ideas that they had in Canada which presumably was this beginning of the prairies and one one crop, large crop, big fields, not mixed farming, was um, not something that he thought was appropriate for Kent 
and for filming, uh, f farming in Kent. Uh, Ed Loud says, heavy, but sometimes we need the heavy stuff. Life isn't all happy dreams and rose-tinted glasses after all. Uh, thank you for that. It's nice to look back with those road-tinted specs, but life could be hard at times. My God, yes, it sounded like it was very hard. But he just went on. I mean, he was relentless. Uh, Kentish man, west of the Medway, here in the East Kent, east of the Medway, we are men of Kent. Oh, yes, I've heard that many times, and I always never know which way around it goes. I love that sense of building a map in your mind, knowing every detail of your landscape in your own terms, says Ed. Yeah, and... Um, of course, that's one of the things that people, I think, aren't doing so much now with SatNav, where uh, with SatNav you're the centre of the universe and um, a voice is telling you where to go and maybe you see these landmarks, but these landmarks aren't really in reference to anything else. They're always in reference to, oh, yes, if I go down this road, it's approaching me. And yet, if you can read a map and you can see a landmark and you know where the sun is and things... And you start to have that mental picture in your mind of where you are in relation to so many other things instead of being at the centre of the universe. Uh, Larry Hazelwood, great book. Uh, hello, Richard, says John Willoughby. Hello to you. I'm doing very well, thank you. I got the impression that he was hardworking but wise but was never really appreciated. And I think that's, that is very true. Um, I think that the, the chapter sums him up a bit more. And we're close to the end of the chapter, but I'll I'll get that again. I think this is the essence of um, the essence of the book is clearly about the. I think this was written at the turning point of the new techniques that were coming in, and I've been talking about these monoculture and stuff in my videos, having read Graham Harvey and Colin, um, whatever his name was, I can't remember his name. Yet. Oh, Graham Harvey, this is a. This is one of this is a this is a terrific book I'm reading at the moment, The Killing of the Countryside by Graham Harvey. Recommend it very much. Um, very clever. Look at that the the picture there. You've got a cross, a grave, and all this um, perennial ryegrass in the foreground, and in the background you've got what countryside did look like, and in the foreground you've got what it is now, this monoculture. Um, interesting but uh, um, and I today I was with a chap um, he's, he's the president of the Sussex Wildlife Trust lovely bloke um, Tony Whitbread very uh, important man and ecologist and we were filming something else completely differently but I had a chat with him about farming and what he saw as farming and he just he just said you're right you know, it is that is where ecology goes completely out the window. It's it's a desert in terms of insects and the whole food chain, you know, and the, the corridors are so small, there's nothing there, and farming has killed it all off. And he said there are some good farmers that are trying, but on the whole... So I said to him, is it possible that I can do an interview with about, about this subject at some point? He said, oh, yeah, I'm more than happy to. So um, it would be good to get an authoritative voice saying instead of me I'm all I'm doing is regurgitating the views that are in this book which have been and and Colin Trudge as the other chap so so shall we reap which is um a really good book um 
so it's all very interesting. And uh, and Tony was telling me he um, he gives talks on rewilding. He does a lot at NEP, um, where they've been rewilding with, I can't remember the woman there. Is it Isabella Tree or somebody like that tree? Um, and she's written a book, we Rewilding. And he talks about, you know, all of that. And it's fascinating. So hopefully that would be good. Anyway, um, thank you very much for coming along. Uh, life isn't meant to be easy, but I definitely... But if it was more harmonious with the natural world, it was definitely more harmonious with the natural world 50 years ago. Yes, well, we, that's it. We've just sort of um, flattened the natural world, haven't we? But there are people are greening up towns and cities, which is something that we need to do, these sort of um, stepping stones for nature, um, which I was learning about today. Um, and will be in the video. But I would desperately like to see our countryside just brought back and the nature and, and all of that with it. Anyway, um, thank you very much for watching. Uh, back again tomorrow. What's tomorrow? Thursday. So there we are. We'll, we'll crack on with this. I, I'm, I hope you're finding it enjoyable. It's very different to all the others. But we can't stop because his or his name has got initials in it. And every book that we've had success with has been initials. Whereas um, our Edward Edward Bushen, who did A Cack-Handed War, was too, too hard for me to read. And clearly, it's down to the initials. Anyway, take care. Uh, hello, Farmer Piles. Me old acker. Owl bliss. Owl bist. It's all right. Thank you very much, sir. Very nice of you to ask. Anyway, take care, and I will catch up with you later. Don't forget there's a Vogue show at 8 o'clock with the lovely Julia. Something to look forward to. But from me, that's it for now. Uh, sorry, it was, I was reading a bit cra crappily. It is very hot, and that's my excuse. I'll get better at it. Um, it's good to have a book with a different tone. Well, uh, thank you, Lee, Yeah, because we did do two H.V. Uh, Mortons, didn't we, which was quite light and... Um, fun and now we're tackling something and i want to try and get more interaction with you guys and you go i think 1950s i am getting old yeah i know 50 years ago uh was when i started to drive isabella tree there we go yes that was marvelous anyway take care and i will catch up with you tomorrow uh for more of this and later if you watch the vogue show till then bye bye for now bye bye <laughs>